Well, thank you again for coming to our journey through the sovereignty of God and salvation. It's been a thrill for me to share this with you. Let's begin in prayer. Father, thank you again that, uh, that, you're, that you are Lord, that, you have, uh, that you're sovereign, that you have a plan for our lives. Lord, that we can look to you for answers. Thank you for your word, that it's true and accurate. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would be here and that you would guide our thoughts and, and words in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last time we, we talked to you, you want to follow in your handouts for those that weren't here. We have uh, four slides on the handouts that were from last time, starting with Romans 12 through Roman numeral 4. And then we'll begin tonight on Roman numeral 5, which is God's sovereignty and purpose are so deep. We're, we're, we're covering Romans 9. Again, a, a thumbnail sketch a little bit through the eyes of election and God's purpose. God's sovereignty and purpose are so deep, they encompass everything good and evil. 17 and 18, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Letters in, lead, letters in red, excuse me, <laughs> highlight, of course, that God is using a man to do his purpose. So then, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he, has, he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Pharaoh, another man that God used. God raised up and sustained Pharaoh, even though what he was doing was counter to God's desired will. And we'll talk more about his desired will in the future a little bit. And part two, God did this for his divine purposes. One, to demonstrate his power. And two, to proclaim his name. These are men that God has used to accomplish his purpose, his will. Part B, note that it is not external coercion, but internal inclination. God brings about his will on both ends of the spectrum, the beginning and the ending parts. Roman numeral six in our handouts, if you can find that. How can God hold man accountable if God is determining the outcome? Good question. Answer at the bottom of the page, because I am God. That's why. Romans 9.19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? This concept that God is God. He is the one that decides. Why does he decide? Because he is God. Example of the potter and the clay. We just talked about this in scripture, but here's some extra thoughts about it. The rights of the creator and potter. Now think of this from a potter at the wheel versus a lump of clay on the, on the wheel going around. I did that in, in high school. The creator has never, does not now, nor ever will owe anything to his creation. So when you look at it from a perspective of free will or from the Armenian standpoint that, you know, I can choose and then God will, will help me through into heaven. That's not the perspective that Romans 9 here is talking about. It's the potter and the clay example. Therefore, the idea of fairness and equality are mute points. God is not required to give equally that which he is not required to give at all. Think about that one a little bit. God is not required to do what you think he should do. So it is God's choice. It is God's sovereignty. I love this material for that reason. We get to see God in maybe a little bit different view than what we normally see him in how powerful and independent and how resourceful and God he is. Three, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Creation and coherence, sustainability places the creation in a position of clay in the potter's hand. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which were visible. Out of nothing God created the world. It's review, but it's good review. Hebrews 1.3, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact re representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. <clears throat> I like this one. Number four. The creator potter has all rights. End of story. <laughs> that, that's it in our world. You can, you can imagine in, in those that you work with that are not believers or you, know, you listen to the media or the, the world around us they would be, you know, all up in arms about this kind of a statement. But we know from what Romans 9 says and other passages that the creator potter has all rights. And creation has no rights, no, no claims, and no demands. The potter has the right to make, shape, and design every part and every detail of his creation exactly the way he wants Jeremiah 18, 1 to 6. 
the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So God just takes and molds us the way he wants us to be. Nation, people, individuals, Isaiah 29:15 Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place and they say who sees us or who knows us he turned things around shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made would say to its maker he did not make me or what is formed say to him who formed it he has no understanding and Potter has the right to execute justice based on the standard he has determined that serve his divine decrees. I like that about the Potter. It just puts me in my place. <laughs> it's like I'm just a lump of clay and, and the wheel is turning around and God is making it making me how he wants me to be. Each one of you as well. The ultimate reason behind it all, Romans 9, 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Election and the entire plan of God has one purpose, one goal, and that is the glory of God. And that's what this verse reflects. 9.23, he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God's wrath against sin and his power in judgment serves to produce in vessels of mercy, or the elect, the ability to know him most completely and worship him with the greatest intensity for all eternity. 9.24, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Election is true not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Some might think the, the Jew is, is uh, exempt from election or only chosen by election. But that's not what Romans 24, 9.24 says. Paul, the example of, of Paul in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 6. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name for the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. <clears throat> he is a chosen instrument of mine. So God chose Paul. God chose Lydia in Acts 16. A woman, woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart. God did that. He, to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Roman numeral 8. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, and 2 Peter 3, 9 are sometimes troubling passages in this regard to election because they talk about all men coming to be saved. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made in behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How does that fit with election? A lot of people have asked that question. We're going to look into that. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's another one of those verses that says, you know, why isn't everybody a believer? That's what it, it, it would appear that the scriptures are saying here. Comes through on the overhead, okay. I think you can see it in the back. Did you include this on the? No, because okay. Okay. This particular slide is is not on your handout because it came, would have come out too tiny, but the documents are. We'll get into that. This is a picture of God's God's will. God has one will, two dimensions. Okay. We'll go through the passages in a little bit, but I've heard these called different things. His determined will, what he determines will happen, or it's unrevealed in, in divine decrees or, or scripture. And then also God's desired will, what he desires to happen or what is revealed in the word. <clears throat> Let's look 
a little more closely. I think this one should be on your handouts. Exodus 4, 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I, excuse me, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Acts 2.23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. For, and then Acts 4.27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And then Matthew twenty-two fourteen: many are called, but few are chosen. This is examples of God's determined will, what he, will de- he has determined will happen. Uh, other examples, Matthew 7, 13, 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Few who find it are, in the, in the blue, referred to his determined will. We'll, get, we'll talk more about this. Hang on to your questions, thoughts. Romans 9, 21, 22. Or does the potter, who just reviewed this, have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels for destruction? Okay. These are verses of his revealed will, or desired will, revealed in his word, what he desires to happen. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the, in the wilderness. And another obvious one, you shall not murder, Exodus 20. Second Peter 3.9. We just read that one, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's kind of a summation of it. Second Peter 3, 9 states, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to the knowledge, to repentance. Wishing is from the Greek verb bulimai, which is synonymous with the will of God. Romans 9.19 states, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? It's understood there that no one can resist his will. Will here is the same term used in 2 Peter 3, 9, bulimai. If no one can resist, ultimately, his will, 
And if God willed that all would be saved, then you would be left with universalism. The answer, God has, God's will has two dimensions. Okay. Here it is again, the same passage. In the blue is God's moral or desired will. In the red is God's determined or decreed will. So if you read it again, the man, this man delivered over the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, God's desired will, and put him to death, his determined or decreed will. So both wills of God were being accomplished at the same time at Christ's death. Revelation 17, 17 says, states, For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose, in the blue, by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God will be fulfilled. Here people are aligned with the beast, who are obviously, in the blue, violating God's moral will by giving their allegiance to the beast, yet fulfilling God's determined or decreed will. On one hand, God does desire his moral will that all would repent and believe the gospel. On the other hand, God also wills that only some are saved, his decreed will. For many are called, but few are chosen but we first corinthians 1 23 but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to gentiles but to those who are called in other words not everyone is called only some are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god God wills the greater good. It may be desired, his desired will, or it may not be. It is decided by what God determines for any given situation will best put on display his divine attributes and therefore achieve his divine purpose. We exercise our wills in a similar way. I really want a piece of French silk pie but I am determined to stick to my diet. Want and determined are two different dimensions or aspects of our, of our wills. I really desire to go on a trip to Europe, but I am determined to save my money. Desire and determined are two different portions of our wills. This is what a simple example of what God is doing. I don't want to punish you, but it is the best thing to do. So two different aspects of, of wills. There's not a, another answer or a way that election works. 
apart from having two dimensions of God's will. It's an integral part of the overall concept of election. We just go back to this line again. If no one can resist his will, all would be saved, then you'd be left with universalism. But because God has another aspect or dimension of his will, then he can choose who he wants to choose at the time he wants to choose it. And so there's not a contradiction in Scripture when he says he wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. A very important part of, of what election is about. Coming to the end, this is exciting for me. How does the doctrine of election make a practical difference in my life? Doctrine of election produces humility. It crushes pride. I can take zero credit for my salvation. Salvation is all of God. Jonah 2.9, salvation is from the Lord. It was not my intellect, my wisdom, my spiritual sensitivity, my whatever that caused me to respond to the gospel. It was God's sovereign work of grace in my life. My pride, my ego, my arrogance is crushed. Election is the most powerful doctrine we have that humbles the heart of the believer. Perhaps that is why there is so much arrogance in the church. When you understand it, it really humbles you. Doctrine of election exalts God. It gives him all the credit. It puts me on my knees in daily thanksgiving and worship of him who chose me and saved me. Can I do anything less than worship and praise him forever for rescuing me from the judgment and condemnation to hell? Wow. No. Can I do anything less than worship and praise him? No. Worship and praise comes a little bit more authentic, a little bit more real, a little bit deeper, perhaps. You choose the word that fits you for when you begin to understand election and how much God loved you and chose you, snatched you unto himself. And doctrine of election keeps the church focused on deep thought. God-glorifying study and contemplation. Keeps our minds from becoming flabby, unproductive, lazy, and wasted. We've experienced a lot of that throughout these sessions. A lot of questions, comments, thinking. 
It promotes rigorous discussion, perseverance and study, and countless hours of meditation, all of which gives firmness, fiber, and content to all of the doctrines of Scripture as they apply to the life of the church. It awakens believers who are drifting on a sea of assumed beliefs who have never thought through or analyzed what they believe. Doctrine of election is good for us, our children, and our grandchildren. It is? Yes, it is. Doctrine of election keeps the church from compromise, gimmicks, and arm-twisting evangelism. We evangelize in a graveyard, not in a hospital ward. <laughs> yeah, we're dead. God will draw the elect. God has also specified how he will draw the elect and what he uses. The church's responsibility is to give a clear, uncompromised proclamation of the gospel. We talked about that evangelizing, why, why evangelize. I think we've covered that fairly well. We're commanded to. God uses men to get this message out. But it also, election, we talked about this, takes away the burden of trying to convert someone to be saved. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's not up to us. It is our responsibility to tell them. Under Crouch has a song calls, Tell them, even if they don't believe you, just tell them, even if they don't believe you. I'm sorry, I forget all the words. Just tell them for me that I love them and I came to let them know. Doctrine of election produces holiness. If God elects you and predestines you to holiness, Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be blameless before him, then our goal should be to be holy. We should desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we may magnify him who has so wondrously chosen and saved us for all eternity. The doctrine of election is the basis for my eternal security. What? Really? Yeah. There are no dropouts in God's plan. Those in eternity past that were elected for salvation, all will make it to their final destiny in heaven. Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is not based on my keeping power, but rather on his. John 10. He is the one who our confidence is in. Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. 
For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 If you are truly saved, God will be at work in your life producing fruit and good works. Matthew 24, 24 says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise. This is in the end times of times of tribulation. And will show great signs and wonders so as to mis- mislead, if possible, even the elect. What does that mean to us? We're, we are the elect, those of us who believe in Christ. Mark 13 is a similar passage. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. I looked up the word possible. It's the dynatos, I'm not saying that exactly right, dunatos. Its definitions are able, Powerful, mighty, strong, sub one, mighty in wealth and influence, sub two, strong in soul, to bear calamities and trials with fortitude and patience, strong in Christian virtue, to be able to do something, mighty, excelling in something, having power for something. This kind of defines what that Greek word possible means. And it's a summation of, it's not possible, (laughs) basically is what that's saying. If possible, even the elect, and it's not possible to lead astray the elect, then or now. The doctrine of election results in stability. I'm eternally secure. I am loved. God has chosen me in eternity past. I have a glorious future. By his sovereignty and providence, he is in control of every detail of my life. Doctrine of election infuses the believer with boldness. Think about that. Now the, now the burden is off trying to convert someone and God can use you in whatever form or shape of words or character or personality that he's given you to share the word. I want to strive to get better at it, communicate better, but it gives us boldness. If God is sovereign, if God has chosen me, predestined me, and given me a security that is eternal, then I should have boldness in my witness. And the risks, quote-unquote, I take to reach the world with the gospel. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Acts 18, 9 and 10, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking. That's the charge to us as believers. And do not be silent, for I am with you. 
and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Doctrine of election gets my eyes off myself and unto God. Election gives me purpose and direction as I focus my life on his glory. We talked a lot about his glory in the beginning, especially. Now I'll have to think back on what this whole summation is all about. It's, it's got for God's glory. It keeps my relationship with God in the proper perspective. He is the potter, I'm the clay. God judges me, I don't judge him. The doctrine of election makes my evangelism and prayer effective. I have confidence, even though I am unaware who they are, that God has elected some individuals who will respond to the gospel when I proclaim it. My job is to be faithful and bold. God will be faithful in drawing men to himself. Likewise, when I pray for the unsaved, I know God will, in his sovereignty and providence, bring about his will and answer those prayers in the manner he determines as best. And that's it. Any thoughts, questions? Pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Pretty powerful words in terms of what God has done for us. Okay. Maybe a, I could ask a couple of you to say a prayer in regard for closing. Um, Bob, if you'd pass the mic around, anybody that would, would like to begin, <clears throat> then I'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you that you care so much for us, that you have brought us to yourself, you've given us the blessing of enjoying you and your creation, giving you the glory. Thank you that we were able to learn from your word in these teachings. Thank you for Steve and his willingness to teach us and help us to be ones who listen carefully and believe and practice your word. I'll just close. Father, thank you again for the privilege of, of uh, being chosen by you. Lord, thank you that we can be with you in heaven someday because of that. And Lord, I just uh, desire to fall at your feet and worship. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done and all, all that you pl will do. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>